Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. This morning's scripture lesson is from Mark 5, verses 24 through 34. Now, actually, this is a story within a story because it interlaces with the tale of Jairus and the healing of his daughter. Now, some prefer to name him Jairus, but I will say Jairus. If you wish, you may find this passage in your pew Bibles on page 914. But first, let us prepare our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, as we read this morning's scripture, let us pay heed to the pronouncement that Jesus made when he stated, all things are possible for the one who believes. And help us remember the instant reply of the father with a child possessed by a demonic mute spirit, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Amen. So Jesus went with Jairus. Ah, but a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, Oh, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Just as immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you, you see crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So we find Jesus on his way to Jairus' home. Jairus' daughter is ill and dying, and Jairus has nowhere else to turn. So in desperation, he reaches out to Jesus. I've got a daughter. I get it. Jesus stops what he's doing, and he heads to Jairus' house. But along the way, there's a woman who touches his clothes and he asked, who touched me? That's the question of the text. Who is this woman really? 
So a couple of weeks ago, I was in Montreat, North Carolina. I was there just to preach the, the Sunday morning worship service, and I saw a community from all my life, I think. I saw college professors and friends from seminary. I saw friends from three of the four churches that I have served. I saw people who knew me as a student, as a friend, as a pastor. But this also happened. Oh, you're Sarah's dad. You're, you're Nathan's dad. You see, the truth is, my kids have provided more leadership at Montreat over the last decade than I have. So for many, I was the dad, and I was proud to be known just that way. Yet as grateful as I am for all of these associations, I'm not sure any of them are the best description of who I am. Jesus asked, who touched me? The text provides an answer to that. This woman is a woman with a history, like everyone. Her history, for 12 years, she has been ill with hemorrhaging. That's her story. She had gone from doctor to doctor, which left her broken and broke. Her particular condition meant not only did she ex ex uh, experience physical pain, but her faith forbid her from touching another person unless she would make that person unclean. She not only endures pain, but she is ostracized because of her illness. And over time, this history becomes definitive of who she is. Ask anyone who this woman is. Well, she is just a sick woman. And the irony? The irony is that the community believed that this is how God sees her. So to ostracize her for her uncleanness, well, that's just the right thing to do. This woman didn't just have a disease. The disease had her. Too often... Too often the world defines us by what's wrong with us. Too often the world defines us by our flaw, our failure, our brokenness, even our disease. Sometimes we do that to ourselves. We see ourselves by what's wrong with us, as if that's who we are. That was her narrative. The world defined her by what was wrong with her. But this nameless woman, she displays extraordinary courage because somewhere within her, she imagines being a different person. She imagines a different definition of who she is. If I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed, just his clothes. She does, and she is. And Jesus answers his own question. Who touched me? Oh, it's you, my daughter. Now the text doesn't tell us her name, almost never does. But it does tell us who she is. She is the very daughter of Christ. So often in Scripture, these stories of transformation, they, 
they come to us as if it happens all in an instant. We see transformation from outcast to being included, from ill to being healed, from broken to being redeemed. And we've seen transformation like that. But in our lives, it almost never happens in an instant. Of course, to suggest that in this story is actually to misread it too, it seems to me. When we meet this woman, she's already reaching for Jesus' robe. But if I understand the text, this moment followed a long journey. For 12 years, she has been seeking healing. For 12 years, she has been trying to become a different person. For 12 years, she has been wanting to be understood and known, not by her disease, but as a daughter of the living God. It took courage to imagine that kind of transformation. She is transformed, but it doesn't happen in an instant. It's a long, demanding, struggling journey. Educated is the memoir of Tara Westover. It's quite a story. She grew up in the mountains of Idaho, one of seven children. Her father was a fundamentalist Mormon who prepared his family every day for the end of days. They buried canned peaches and they dug bunkers. None of the seven kids went to school or ever saw a doctor because the government was the enemy. Their house was filled with fear and mental illness and violence. She was steeped in this libertarian, fundamentalist, fearful, and angry world. But by the age of 27, this young woman, who had grown up all but hidden from the world, she earns a PhD from Cambridge. It's a pretty remarkable feat given that the first classroom she ever entered was a college classroom at BYU. Her pursuit of education estranged her from her family. They said she was putting her mortal soul in peril as she gave attention to the words of men rather than the word of God. But she persisted, living toward a future she had never seen, but she trusted could be. She said the hardest part was to give up her identity. As oppressive as the identity that her family had given her, it was painful to set that past aside and claim a new self. She described it this way. She said, I, I became a changed person, a new self. You could call that selfhood many things, transformation, metamorphosis, betrayal. I call it an education. Tara Westover is a woman of courage, and she reminds me of the woman in this story. Because this woman refused to accept the narrative that the world had defined and determined for her, she would not be defined by what was wrong with her. No, she would live toward the day when it was clear to her and to all that she was Christ's daughter. Me? I'm a pastor, I'm a friend, I'm a father. I'm a man who loves to read and on occasion build some furniture. 
I've gone to school and I've gotten my share of traffic tickets. I've failed at times. I've embarrassed my kids and often enjoyed it. I have embarrassed myself and almost never enjoyed it. I married up, as they say where I came from, and that fact is actually recorded in the session minutes of the Riverside Church in Jacksonville. Tom R. married up, moved, seconded, unanimously approved. All of that is part of my story. It's my history. But when it comes to answering Jesus' question, who are we? Our history is always going to give an incomplete answer to that. Like this woman, if we are going to name who we really are, our identity rests less in our past and more in God's future. We are God's children, and we are living toward a day when that is clear to us and to all. So this week I reviewed John Meacham's book, The Soul of America. It's a good to think about the American soul. With the cookouts and fireworks and parades, we, we might be tempted to think of ourselves as the beacon of capitalism. That would be a good thing. But to say we're defined by our economics is too small, although for some that would certainly be their religion, I suppose. We could think of ourselves as a superpower for a season. American exceptionalism is a doctrine for many. But let's take Jesus' question, who are we as a nation? That's a question of the soul. So we have to think of ideals and great people. Jefferson and Lincoln, Harriet Tubman and Susan B. Anthony. And we look at our history, and our history, like everybody's history, is complicated. It's complicated. Before the colonies became a nation, we were building our identity on the backs of slaves. We said it was necessary, and some Presbyterians led the way in saying it was what God intended. In the earliest days of our nation, we engaged in what can reasonably be called ethnic cleansing as we removed the people who occupied these lands before us. We kept their names, Cherokee and Shawnee and others, but we drove the people away. Some said it was necessary, and some Presbyterians led the way in saying it was what God intended. In the midst of that season of our history, Andrew Jackson, he ran for president as an evangelist for the common man. But when Jackson said common man, what he meant was the common white man. For Jackson, the soul of America was white and had no room for slaves or Native Americans or, or women for that matter. He was a zealous advocate of what was known as the Indian Removal Act. In May of 1830, a congressman from Georgia, Wilson Lumpkin, he stood on the floor to support the Indian Removal Act. He said this, he said, we support this bill, but do not do this for the sake of Georgians. Oh no, they can take care of themselves. 
Do this for the sake of the Cherokee, for as a lesser people, he said, they would not benefit from increasing contact with the superior white race. The good people of Georgia can only be expected to extend benevolence for so long. Make them leave for their own good. Uh, Congressman Lumpkin did something that we all do. He expressed He expressed his racist view and made it sound morally superior. We almost never do bad things. We figure out how they can be articulated as good things first, and then we do them. Like people of Jesus' day who assumed that God wanted sick women to be ostracized, We, too, figure out how to dress up in goodness our lesser selves. That's why, looking back at stories of Scripture and stories of our lives and stories of our country, they're important. It instructs us. As Meacham says, we look to history not to hold up our forebears as some kinds of gods. Even the great ones were people of their own time. Even the founding fathers, great as they were, were men of their time. And their ideas were flawed. And subsequent generations have had to work to repair some of the flaw. No, we don't look to the past to sanctify it nor do we look to the past in condescension as if living in a later time somehow makes us different or more righteous. No, we look to the past to learn. And what the past teaches us is every generation has to battle for what Lincoln called our better angels. That's the battle of our souls. That's the soul of America. For you see, you and me and this country, who we are is still becoming. It's not behind us. It's ahead of us. America is still becoming. And in this season, it is our calling to struggle for the better angels. And to do that takes courage. 1925, Clarence Darrow defended John Scopes in the monkey trial of Dayton, Tennessee. Do you remember that? The year before, I don't mean, do you remember being there? I just, do you remember reading about that? The year before 1924, Darrow defended two college students who were charged with the murder of a 14-year-old boy. They were Leopold and Loeb. They were convicted, and the prosecution was seeking the death penalty, and and Darrow was arguing for mercy. His closing argument, they said, lasted 12 hours. You thought sermons went on forever. Twelve, I'm just getting warmed up. I'm just getting warmed up. He ended his closing with this. 
I am pleading for life, understanding, charity, kindness, and the infinite mercy that forgives all. I am pleading that we overcome cruelty with kindness and and hatred with love. I am pleading for the future. I am pleading for a time when hatred and cruelty will not control our hearts, when we can learn by reason and judgment and understanding and faith that all life is worth saving and that mercy is the highest attribute. In a couple of paragraphs, Clarence Darrow summed up over 30 years of preaching. For every week, I am pleading for the future, for you and for me, for America, for the world itself, to set aside the narratives that have divided us and demeaned us and are destroying us. I am pleading for the future when we will all be defined not by our flawed and broken histories, but by the dreams that God refuses to give up on for us. That's why I love the courage of this woman. She knew, if I can just touch his clothes, I will become the person God always intended me to be. We can't touch his clothes, but we can touch his words or let his words touch us. And in its own way, it'll bring about that future that we're pleading for. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.